Tonight, um, we have one of our newest staff members speaking, Leah Everson. Leah is a graduate of Denver Seminary, uh, something that I am not. And um, that's, uh, that's quite an accomplishment. That's all i got to say. Uh, she was first referred to me by uh, Dr. Craig Blomberg, whom a lot of you know. He said, you know, basically, hire her, <laughs> is what he said. And then, of course, true to fashion... I asked Leah about getting more involved and stuff, and she decided to go to a different church, and because um, uh, she had, you know, some smarts there. Uh, anyway, so uh, she she was an associate pastor there for quite some time, and uh, helped them through a major transition. <laughs> um, and then uh, she, um, anyway came back around and uh, I asked her again. So I am so pleased to introduce to you Leah Everson. She's uh, along with Evan Perkins been teaching the theology classes that occur upstairs. Plus uh, she's going to be one of the uh, founders of the eventual Scum Study Center. So please welcome Leah. Hello. Just a moment while I get situated. It's weird hearing your voice in a microphone. Have you ever done that? (laughs) People in our world tend to admire those who have faith. We admire their faith. We long to have their faith. My mom told me about a segment she saw recently on the Today Show where each of the news anchors were sharing the stories that impacted the most over the last 10 years. Matt Lauer picked a story that you might have heard about. It made national news. It's kind of one of those things that you would really only expect to happen in a movie. Um, It's about a story of two families. There was a van of six people driving from, um, they were from a school called Taylor University. It's a Christian university in Indiana. My sister actually goes there. And while they were driving from a banquet, they were hit by a semi-truck. Five people in the van were killed, and one girl survived, a girl they believed to be Laura Van, Van Rin. Laura's family was notified. They were warned that she had serious head injuries. Her head was all bandaged up, that she might not seem familiar to them um, because of the head trauma she had experienced. And so they prepped them to meet her. And they noticed some things that were kind of different about her, but they just attributed it to the head trauma she experienced. One of the things that happened was she would say the name Whitney over and over again. Whitney, Whitney, Whitney. And they kind of ignored it, attributed it to the trauma, of course. And then one day, five weeks later, Laura's sister, Lisa, was walking down the hall of the hospital with her. And the girl again said, Whitney. Then she said, Sirac. Then she said two other names. Lisa asked, are those your parents? Is that your last name? And the girl said, yes. Laura had died five weeks earlier in the car accident. The girl who survived was Whitney Sirac. It was a complete case of mistaken identity. Now, it seems that most people in this kind of situation, the families would respond in any number of ways. The family who lost their daughter all of a sudden, who thought they had survived this car accident, might be 
totally better. The family who lost their daughter went through the grieving process uh, of you know, burying who they thought was her daughter. All of a sudden, she's alive again. I mean, both sides could be angry at the coroner for, for not, under, not catching who this person was. But that's not what happened. The Van Rins hold no bitterness, and neither do Whitney's parents. Whitney's dad said, I know there are people who have asked us, how come you're not upset? How come you're not bitter? He says, I know it's because of the forgiveness we have experienced through our relationship and our faith. Of course, they're talking about their faith and relationship with Jesus Christ. Faith alone is not enough. And that's what we're going to talk about today. How who we have faith in makes all of the difference. And that he is constantly reaching out to us in our darkest, darkest times. Um, If you'll pray with me, we're going to get this started and ask for his presence here. Lord God, I ask that you would be here and that you would speak through me, that the words from my mouth would be directly from yours, that this would not be something that um, praises me but praises you, Lord Jesus. God, I pray for each person here, and I just ask that you would help them know that you are loved by them, that they would know that what you have to say today is for them. In your name, amen. We are continuing on in Mark. We've been doing a series in Mark for a few months now. Uh, So starting in chapter 8, verse 22, a little bit of background. We just came off from one of those amazing feedings that Jesus split a few loaves of bread and some fish into enough food to feed 4,000 people. And the Pharisees came then after this amazing sign and asked for a sign that he was somebody important, if that wasn't enough. Um, And then Jesus warned his disciples against the east of the Pharisees. Now we come to verse 22, and they are on land again after traveling in a boat, and they're now in Bethsaida. And it says, They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? Now does this little blurb seem familiar to you at all? A few weeks ago, Kim's nodding her head because she preached a passage that is almost word for word exactly the same in chapter 7 of a group of people who brought a man who was deaf and mute and they asked Jesus to touch him. They begged Jesus to touch him. Those words are almost exactly the same. And Jesus again here, he takes the man aside away from these people, away from the village and again he uses spit and touch to heal this guy. Something that's different is Jesus asks him, do you see anything? He's never asked if his healing worked before. It's kind of acting like a doctor right now, you know? Like a way a doctor gives you medication and says, come back in a few days, let me know how it's going, and you come back, and is the pain worse? Is it better? Or, you know, rate your, rate your pain on a scale of 1 to 10. And the guy says, he looks up, the guy who had been touched Touched by Jesus. The, the guy who had been touched by Jesus says he looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. So the medicine work worked a little bit. I mean, the spit did something. He wasn't totally blind anymore, but he obviously couldn't see very well. So again, I mean, well, let me just take a second there. 
has Jesus ever not been effective healing before? Have we ever seen him not be able to heal someone? Are there bells going off for you? Can Jesus heal? What's really going on here? Verse 25. Once more, Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Okay, now we can breathe a sigh of relief. (laughs) Jesus healed the guy. He can still do it. For a second, it seemed like maybe he couldn't. But really, is the question like, could Jesus heal him? Or in other words, was it a problem that he couldn't heal him? Or was it just that Jesus didn't heal him in one step? Did Jesus choose to heal a guy in two steps for a reason? Mike mentioned Dr. Craig Blomberg, who's a professor at Denver Seminary, and he comes here. If you ever have a conversation with him about scripture, most likely he will mention the word context. It got beaten into my head for three and a half years there. Uh, Context, that is looking at the passage surrounding a verse in question. That is looking at what has happened before and after and trying to interpret something that's difficult based on those things. So what did we just study last week? The disciples had been in a boat traveling with Jesus. Jesus was warning them about the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. And the disciples had forgotten to bring any bread on board except for one loaf. And when Jesus warned them about the yeast of the Pharisees, they said, It's because we have no bread. We forgot the bread. Jesus just multiplied a couple loaves to feed 4,000 people. Do you think the bread is really a problem? Jesus says to them, do you still not see? Do you still not understand? He repeats it a couple times. Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? Your ears fail to hear? Do you still not understand? He repeats the words for to see twice in this passage. And then in our passage that we just talked about, the blind man, words for seeing are repeated eight times. Eight times. So there's a connection here between the sight of the disciples and the sight of this blind man who was healed. That's my son. (laughs) Let's go on. Jesus and the disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Jesus asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. So the polls are good. He has an 86% approval rate. While some people want to kill him, other people say, oh, he's like a prophet. You know, he's like Elijah, the guy who, who God took up into heaven in bodily form because he was so great. Or he's like any one of the other prophets who God sent to speak and to share with us. Or even John the Baptist. Maybe he came back from the dead. So this is what people are saying. And it's kind of easy to talk about what other people think about you, right? I mean, if a friend asks, hey, you know, what do you think they think about me? I mean, it's okay to say that. But then Jesus raises the bar a bit. Imagine that they're walking along, you know, just kind of casually having this conversation. And all of a sudden Jesus stops and turns and looks them in the eye and says, But what about you? Who do you say I am? I'll stop reading right there. Have the disciples ever gotten this question right? 
I mean, really, look back on the last eight chapters of Mark. Have they ever understood who Jesus was? We just came off from a passage where, where Jesus was frustrated because they didn't see, they, they didn't understand. After all of these miracles, after all of the healings that they've seen, they don't get it. So if we were reading this for the first time, we would you know, say, oh boy, here we go. I can picture the disciples kind of shifting their eyes, not wanting to make eye contact with Jesus, shuffling their feet, looking down. And then Peter, and it's, it's always Peter, isn't it? Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. The Messiah is someone the Jewish people had anticipated for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Um, actually, the Greek word, he, Messiah is a Hebrew word. And when translated into Greek, it is Christos or Christ. So when we say the, the title Jesus Christ, we're actually calling him Jesus Messiah. Um, it means anointed one. My, the Messiah is someone who's anointed by God to do his work. It was anticipated by the Jews that he would inherit everything that God had promised to Abraham and to David, that he would you know, be the one ruling over the nation of Israel, that he would be the king, he'd be the one delivering them from the Roman Empire who is now ruling and lording over them. This was their hope at the time of Jesus. There were some other speculations about the Messiah, but really this is the majority of the people expected that, that the Messiah would come and deliver them from the Roman rule. Jesus had some bigger plans in mind, including not only delivering the Jewish people, not necessarily from a literal rule, but he had plans of bringing in the Gentiles into relationship with God. His goal was to be savior to all people, not just the Jews. And his goal was more on a spiritual plane rather than the the physical eye to eye that we have nowadays. So disciples finally get that he's the Messiah. But we will soon see that the disciples don't fully understand. Um, They become once again the disciples that we've known for you know, however long we've been studying. Um, Peter, when Jesus is arrested, Peter cuts off a guy's ear. They all flee and run away, and they're not faithful to Jesus. Their idea of the Messiah, one who, someone who would conquer and have physical victory over the world, isn't what Christ came to do at that time. And so... They still don't understand who the Messiah is. Not really. They get it in part. They see people walking around like trees, just like the blind man in the previous passage. They see in part, but they still don't fully see. Thankfully, we know at the end of the gospel that they do get it. I mean, you can read in Acts, in the book of Acts, and read the works that they do. You can read about their faith. You can read First and Second Peter and read from Peter himself about who Jesus is. He gets it eventually. And then at that time, their eyes were opened and their sight was restored, and they saw everything clearly just like the blind man. And we also have hope that God will open our eyes like he opened the blind man's eyes and like he opened 
the disciples' eyes. And like he's opened so many other people's eyes in history to have understanding of who he is. What about you, Jesus asks us? Who do you say I am? The truth is we all have to answer this question eventually. We can't pretend that it doesn't exist. He demands a response. If you've never considered this question before, or perhaps you profess that you don't believe, I want to ask you to consider it. Look at what Jesus did through the first eight chapters of Mark. Look at the the evidence that the disciples saw that brought them to the conclusion that Jesus was the one who was anointed by God to do God's work on this earth. He healed people. He healed people from leprosy. He healed someone who was paralyzed. He claimed that he forgave, forgave that man's sins. He rose a girl from the dead. Let's see, what else? He fed thousands of people. He calmed the seas. He walked on water. He did things that no one should be able to do. This is something. He's something different about this guy. C.S. Lewis is a favorite author of ours at Scum. Um, well, at least he's a favorite of mine and Mike's. And Somebody else quoted him earlier, Kimberly. Um, he writes the story of his conversion in the book, book Surprise by Joy. He says that he was alone in his room working and that he could constantly feel God's presence coming against him every time he stopped working. He constantly felt that God was there. And you have to understand that up until this point, he was claimed to be an atheist. He did not believe God existed, but he could sense his presence. And can you imagine how frustrating that would be to say, I don't believe you exist, but here you are. I mean, how do you, how do you handle that? And he said that finally, in the Trinity term of 1929, he says, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. After becoming a theist, because that was really his change from being an atheist to a theist, he then became a Christian. And as a Christian, C.S. Lewis gave a lot of talks on the radio about Christianity. And they were later published into a book called Mere Christianity. Um, He writes some really specific comments about the claims Jesus made, especially about his ability to forgive sins and the things that the Pharisees said were blasphemous if he had if he wasn't actually God, his, you know, his claims to forgive sins would be claiming to be something that you're not, claiming to be God himself, which is just the worst sin you can commit. And it's the reason that Jesus was crucified. So he's talking about these claims Jesus made. And he says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said, such as claiming to forgive sins or accepting worship as Messiah, like we've just been talking about, this person would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, the Messiah, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any 
patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So what do you believe? Jesus claims to forgive sins. He healed. He walked on water. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he crazy? Is he possessed by a demon? Or was he the Messiah? Now, the rest of you who have already come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah, how is your sight? I remember sitting in a philosophy class in college, and my, my professor, Dr. Jim Bilby, was trying to explain to us the philosophy of Kant. Uh, Kant has some really strange ideas about reality, and I don't remember exactly everything that he believes. I just remember a professor turning and looking at the class after writing some stuff on the board and just burst out laughing because we all had these huge blank stares on our face. It did not make any sense because it was so far from what we experienced and saw in day-to-day lives. So he came, we came back the next time we had class, and he tried explaining it again. And at some point in that class, the light bulb went on. I got it. I understood Kant for about two seconds. <laughs> And then it was gone again. And he kept talking, and I got it again, and then it was gone again. And then I got it again, and I think I passed the test, but I could not tell you what Kant believes for the life of me right now. Sometimes I feel like that's what happens concerning my understanding of God. One day he makes perfect sense. One day I am at perfect peace with him, and I trust him. And then something happens. Someone gets sick. There's a natural disaster. Someone dies. I meet one more person with an addiction. I meet one more person who has failed hopes. I relive my own griefs and failures. My prayers seem to balance off the ceiling. I can't sense his presence. I feel as though I took five steps backwards in my faith within 24 hours. And it is so discouraging. Have you ever experienced that? Maybe that's where you are right now in your faith. Perhaps people are still walking around like trees in your spiritual sight. You struggle to understand. You question what God is doing. You question if he's present. You question if he cares. You question everything you once believed about him. And you ask over and over and over again, where are you, God? Why aren't you healing? What is going on in this situation? I don't get it. What do we do then? I really want to share with you my grandma, (laughs) my grandma Lois. When I was young, about eight or nine, uh, she was diagnosed with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's a disease that is pretty devastating. Uh, it, it attacks the nerve cells that controls the movement of your muscles, the nerve cells in your brain and spinal cord. And so eventually um, your brain, it just basically stops communicating that you want to move and you become paralyzed. There's no cure. And eventually the brain stops communicating with the muscles in your chest, and a lot of people just suffocate to death. 
Most people die within three to five years of this diagnosis, and my grandma lived with it for 10 years. I remember watching her lose her physical ability to walk. She had this ugly black cane that she decorated with lace and called it Ichabod Cane. (laughs) She was still the most upbeat person. But eventually, you know, the disease took away her ability to sew and be crafty and to create. It took away her ability to do the basic things like walking or making us pancakes at the cabin. Eventually, she could no longer go to the cabin. Uh, she lived with our families for a few years before she went into a nursing home. And she became totally dependent on us for all of her bathing and toiletry needs. Probably one of the most humiliating experiences someone can have. And I imagine her days were lonely, um, confined to a bed, especially once she was in the nursing home. And I know that she longed to go to heaven. I mean, we expected her to die after probably six or seven years. And each Christmas when she was there again, it was like, yay, she's here. But I knew that she really wanted to be home with Jesus. But her life, even though her life was confined to a bed, she never stopped living she made an impact on just about every single person she met. I, mem- I remember a woman coming up to me from my church um, who had gone to visit her during the week at the nursing home, and she said, Leah, I went in there, and I was expecting to be, have to encourage your grandma, and I left encouraged and filled with more joy and more love than I went in there with. And at her funeral, my friends were crying, and they were just saying, she was so nice. She loved well. I never questioned that she loved me. And I believe that that's because she wasn't just my grandma, but her source of love came from something much greater than herself. A few years ago, I met a guy whose father-in-law was suffering with ALS. And I remember I asked him kind of naively, like, oh, is he doing okay? Like, I just remembered the joy my grandma had. And I remembered how she was just such a light And I just kind of expected that answer, I guess. And the guy said, oh, he is not doing well. He is so discouraged. He is so depressed. He is irritable. He just wants to die. And my grandma, she wanted to die too, but she wanted to die because she wanted to go home with Jesus. This guy wanted to die because it was over. He wanted it to be over. So the difference between these people was their focus. When I think of my grandma, I think of the verses from 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 18. And it says there, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. She had these verses on her wall, and she would, so she could read them every day and remember and focus on Jesus, her Messiah, her Savior, the one she could focus, the one that was her hope. And I believe that Jesus met her there. He met her on the hospital bed. He met her at every step there. He was there touching her, reaching out, giving her eyes of faith that she could not have on her own. That's what makes all the difference. (sighs) To be honest, I have struggled with my grandmother's death for 10 years. I remember when I was about 10 years old, 
lying in bed one night, or not really lying after a while, I was sitting up and crying and asking God to heal my grandma. It was so hard to see her lose her abilities. It's so hard to see her just waste away in so many ways. And I just, as a little kid, really just, God, will you heal her? And when she died eight years later, I felt betrayed. I felt like God didn't hear my prayer. I felt like he didn't care. He didn't care about her illness. He didn't care about our pain. Through all my pain and questions in the years of of seeing other people get sick, other people die, other people not get healed, um, he has really been faithful to me. About this last fall, actually, this was, she died in 2000, so this has been 10 years since her death. And this last fall, I finally realized how much I was hanging on to this, how much hurt I still had. And not hurt like grieving, but hurt like anger and frustration and distrust. I didn't trust God to heal. Anytime somebody got sick, I figured it was like a death sentence. I didn't trust him to care. And so going through Mark, actually, it was just like, all right, what you going to do, Jesus? Do you heal? What's going on? But anyway, this last fall, I was talking about this with my mentor, Nancy, and she realized that I hadn't really fully grieved my grandma's death, obviously, <laughs> that I hadn't had a chance to grieve. At the time, I was really... There was a lot going on in my life at the time when she died, and I just didn't, I wasn't able to be there to grieve for her. And my mom was coming into town to visit, and my mentor Nancy uh, told me to to grieve with my mom. She told me to reflect on my grandma's life, to celebrate her life, you know, to to pray about it, and to be, you know, opening ourselves up to God and celebrating this woman who was just so wonderful. And with talking to my mom and thinking about my grandma and realizing the faith that she had, I'm beginning to see that though God did not heal my grandma's illness, he gave her life she might not have experienced without it. And she gave life to other people. And I think of other people who have died with similar things, like my friend Raphael was diagnosed with leukemia when I, like six years ago, and I thought God was praying for me asking me to pray for him to be healed. And then when Raphael died, I just didn't get it. Like, I was so frustrated. But again, I think God used his illness to bring him closer to him. I see Raphael, again, as another one of those people who just brought light wherever they went. He was someone who could bring a smile to anybody's face, one of the most loving people and talented that I'd ever met. Does it still hurt that they're gone? Yeah. I don't know if my grandma's death, if that pain will ever really go away. God is revealing to me who he is, that he cares, that he was there with her, that he's there with me, that he's there with our families. He's given me a second touch. And there, in in the truth, I have found peace and a greater understanding of Jesus. What about you? Do you need a second touch from God? 
Do you need God to reach out to you in the midst of your struggling and pain in order to remind you again that Jesus is the Messiah? I think a lot of us can say yes. Thankfully, there are ways that we can open ourselves up to God. Things that we can to do to make ourselves more available so that we can receive his touch. Because it's like one of those things where it's like, oh, I want God to touch me. But you can't really like make God touch you. I mean, so it's one of those frustrating things. Like, I need his presence. It's like, well, how do you get it? There are ways to open ourselves up to him. First of all, be honest. Jesus asked the guy, do you see anything? Now, can you imagine if he said, oh, yeah, it's fine. And people were still walking around like trees, like if everything was still blurry and he hadn't been honest and said that he couldn't see well, and if he hadn't been honest that, oh, the healing didn't actually work, maybe? We have to be honest. We, sometimes it's, we feel like we have to give God the right answer or we have to give other people the right answer. We have to say that, you know, oh, yeah, everything's great. Yeah, I'm happy. Yeah. But really we're struggling and we're not being honest with each other about that. We're not being honest with God about that. And he knows. He just wants us to tell him what's going on. It took me 10 years to express my anger to God over my grandma's death. Please don't pull away like I did and stop talking to God about these things. Engage with others. Engage with Jesus. Be there with him. He is there with you. Part of our mission statement at SCUM is we we strive to be a church who asks questions while seeking truth. You can't ask questions without admitting your doubts and struggles. You just can't. It's impossible. The second thing that you can do is practice spiritual disciplines. Um, Spiritual disciplines are often misunderstood and misrepresented in church. You know, people say, oh, that person prayed for two hours every morning. They must be really holy. Or this person reads their Bible every day. You know, I wish I could be more like them and be that disciplined. But really just doing them to count the hours or count the number of pages or verses you do, that doesn't give you anything. Like, that's, that's totally the wrong goal. Um, there's this book called Spiritual Disciplines Handbook, and I really highly recommend it. Um, Kimberly Clare gave me my copy several years ago, and we're using it right now in our Spiritual Disciplines class that we're leading, Evan and I. In this book, the author says that spiritual disciplines are practices that open us up to God. That is what they are. That is their purpose. It is to help us connect with God. It is to help us, you know, find space in our lives so that we we can, we open our space to God. Let me see if I can say this better. We open space in our lives for God so that he can come into it. So that he can come into our lives so that he can touch us. Otherwise, we're so busy that we have this wall up and we're not doing these things to open ourselves to God. We're not opening our hearts to God and therefore he can't really reach us. And I want to suggest a few disciplines tonight. The first is maybe kind of obvious, but you should pray. Tell God what you're thinking. Tell him about your struggles. Ask him to come into your life. Tell him you don't trust him. Ask him to to help you see him better. Um, there's a lot of disciplines. If we just think of praying as like, dear Jesus, and like the acts thing, like adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, those things are good. Sometimes they're not enough. Um, there are like 
12 different disciplines of prayer in this book. And each of one kind of each one kind of has a, a different bent to it and comes to a different goal at the end. So this book really helps you discover what your goal is and how to get there. There's so many different ways to pray and pray with other people too. At the end of the night um, during worship, we're going to have people in the prayer cave. If you need prayer, if you're struggling in this area, go talk to somebody. Ask them to pray for you. Second, I encourage you to get a mentor. Like Nancy was for me. She was someone who helped me see my anger when I couldn't because I had stuffed it so far down. She was pivotal, pivotal in helping me see what I needed to do and opening myself up to God. We talked about, oh, well, Jesse Heilman talked about finding a shepherd a few weeks ago. You can go back and listen to that sermon. But a few ideas on, on finding a mentor is look for someone who's a little bit further ahead of you in their walk. Like you recognize something in them and you say, I want that. Spend time with them. Talk with them. Be honest about your struggles. See if they can help you along this journey. That's what they are. They are guides to Christ. They are not Christ themselves. Don't get that confused. They are people who can point you to the Lord. And finally, learn more about God. Study. It's amazing how much false theology we can hold in our heads and think that we have it right. A.W. Tozer once said, the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. It is what guides your life. It is what helps you determine so many things in your life, any decisions you make. It helps you... um, I guess with your relationship with God, it's how you interact with him. If you think he's going to be somebody who's judging you and who's ready to put, the, you know, lay down the law every time you turn to him, you're not going to trust him with your doubts. You're not going to trust him with your failures because he won't accept your failures. He's not gracious. But that's not who God truly is. Jesus came to die for our sins and asks for nothing in return than that we just believe in him. Theology is so important. And we offer theology classes and Bible classes and the spiritual disciplines courses here at SCUM. So please sign up the next time they're offered. Or start reading. Start seeking out answers yourselves. There's a book that's just really easily um, easy to read, and it's, it has to do with who God is, by Mark Buchanan. It's called The Holy Wild. It's one of my favorites. And that one especially talks about grace. These things can help. And we must remember that God is faithful. He will reach out to us. He wants to reach out to us. He longs to have relationship with us. That's why Jesus healed the blind man with two touches. Because he wants to keep touching our lives, opening our eyes, helping us understand who he is. I'm going to pray for us now. Please join me. Lord God, I thank you for being here and meeting with us tonight. Jesus, there's a lot of hurt in this room. There's a lot of questions about who you are. God, I ask that you would encourage the people here that you see them, that you know their pain, and that you're ready to reach out to them, Lord. 
May they know your presence. May they know your love. May they feel your, your love for them right now more than they've experienced in some time. God, I pray that those who need prayer would ask for it. God, that they would seek out help from other people, that they would seek out you, that they would seek to understand you better in ways that they can. And Jesus, I ask that you would reach down and touch us tonight. Lord, we're tired of feeling confused. We're tired of not understanding, and we're desperate to know you. Please meet us here. In Jesus' name, amen.